Join with me in prayer once more, please. Father, we're reminded of your faithfulness in suffering, in trials, and in temptations. We pray now that as we consider the faithfulness of Christ, you'd open our eyes still more to the beauty of your faithfulness. Draw us into that faithfulness through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't confess to be much of a movie critic. I've sort of always been one of those types who just kind of gets lost in the flow of the story without really overanalyzing it, which means I end up liking a lot of movies that a lot of people think are stupid. <laughs> but the more that I have talked with people who are a little bit more, more critical of good storytelling, the more I've learned how setting the scene and how setting the stage works and how important it is to, to tell the story in an interesting way. And you know, one, of the, one of the ways that people tell stories, to draw emphasis to a story, to move a storyline along, is by having several different characters in different scenes and to kind of switch between the different scenes and show what's going on here and what's going on there and switch back to this person, switch back to that person. And, and by using scenes in that way, you're, you're driving the story forward until all of the people come together on one big stage and the, the, the story kind of explodes, the, the, the plot explodes. It's interesting because in John chapter 18, as we approach this text this morning, uh, we move out of the garden and into the house of the high priest and we find that John is doing something similar here in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, from verses 12 through, really 12 through 27, John is going to do something similar in setting up a scene for us, setting up a picture. And, and all of this, we remember, is under the sovereignty of Jesus. We're coming out of the garden where Jesus, though he's under arrest, very clearly demonstrated his control of the circumstances. Jesus does not lose control as he moves to the house of Annas and before Caiaphas. And so that is in, that is in our minds, that Jesus is sovereign, even in this moment of trial. And yet, John is going to continue this story by shifting our focus from Jesus to Peter, back to Jesus, back to Peter, and as Jesus, as, 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 as John tells this story, as he shows us what's going on, he's, he's drawing our attention to the, to the way that Jesus is handling a trial, handling a temptation, handling a suffering, and the way that Peter is doing that. And he's going to show us not only the faithfulness of Jesus in trial and suffering, but he's going to also show us failure in trial. The point of our text this morning is not only that Jesus is the perfect God-man, the man who's persevered through trials perfectly, we ought to believe in Jesus as the Son of God who suffered perfectly on our behalf. Not only that, that is true, but what we're going to see this morning in our text as we consider the trials of Jesus and Peter, John is going to show us two general responses 
to suffering and trials in life. And as we face trials in life, as we face difficulty in temptation in life, we're either going to handle the trials of our lives as Jesus does, or we're going to handle the trials of our lives as Peter does. In other words, in the midst of this story of the suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the gospel calls us not only to faith in this Jesus as our Savior, the gospel also calls us to faithfulness to this Jesus as our Lord. Jesus stands as the supreme example of faithfulness. And Peter stands as an example of failure. So this morning, I pray that we pay close attention to these examples, that we learn how to persevere in our faith, persevere in faithfulness to Jesus through trials. Jesus brings us through trials and through difficulties in our lives to grow our faith and our faithfulness. We must, we must respond to trials in our lives by imitating the example of Christ. Notice, first of all, Jesus goes on trial in verses 12 through 14. This trial begins with Jesus, the band of soldiers, verse number 12, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, there are a number of historical details mentioned here that John thinks are important for us to understand if we're going to understand why Jesus was ultimately crucified on a cross. Remember, the whole world had gone after Jesus in the garden. Jews and Gentiles were there which means there was some sort of a, a previously planned cooperation between the Jews and the Romans. Now, the Romans are the political authority of the day, right? They are in charge, politically speaking. And so this very, deal, this very detail of Annas and Caiaphas, this is emphasizing the authority of Rome, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. What's going on here? Well, during the Old Testament times, when God delivered the law to Moses, God established that there only ever be one high priest at a time. That high priest was to keep his role throughout his life. The high priesthood would then pass on to the son of the high priest. This is the way that God designed the priesthood of Israel to function. However, during the days of Jesus, there is this man named Annas. Annas had been the high priest. Uh, he was apparently a rather corrupt individual. Apparently he was also anti-Roman on top of his corruption. And so the Romans used their political authority in Israel to remove Annas out from being high priest. In, the, in his place, Rome Put in, they, they put in place, they instated several other men to be high priest during Jesus' lifetime. The one who was appointed to be high priest uh, by the Romans during the time that Jesus is being uh, tried here in John chapter 18 was this Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. And so it's for all of this background that we read in verse number 13. First they led him to Annas, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. That's kind of what's going on in the background. Caiaphas was high priest that year. Now, that phrase, he was high priest that year, some people have kind of taken that statement to imagine that like the high priesthood was now changing every year. Uh, that it was just this particular year that Caiaphas was serving as high priest. It doesn't seem to be the case according to extra-biblical documents. We have documentation from others who are not writing scripture, but who are recording the details of this time. And it does not seem to be the case that the high priest was changing like every year. Instead, what John seems to be saying is that it was Caiaphas who was high priest that fateful year. The year of Jesus' death, this is the guy who was high priest. It was Caiaphas. John is emphasizing for us this year when Jesus is killed, Caiaphas was the high priest. So there's this whole complicated Jewish history intertwining itself with the life and the ministry of Jesus. We sort of forget some of these, how complicated life is. Uh, when we just read the story of Jesus and we see him doing his miracles and we forget that there's, just like every, uh, every era of history, there's complicated stuff going on in the background, complicated politics in the background. So this guy named Annas, why does, he go, why does Jesus go first to this guy named Annas? Well, Annas continues to have this place of recognized authority in Israel. Even though he's not the actual high priest, he's sort of like the godfather of the, the priestly family. Although he's not technically carrying the authority of the high priest, he's still pretty much recognized as the high priest, as kind of the authority behind the high priest. In fact, we're going to read in just a, a little bit down in verse number 19, he's actually still called the high priest. So there's this, what we see going on in this section, verses 12 to 14, there's this joint task force made up of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Romans. They arrest Jesus at night to avoid any kind of a populist uprising from the Jews. Jesus was a very popular man. We might think that since the Romans have legal jurisdiction, well, then Jesus would go to the Romans, right? Um, but the Jews have taken Jesus He's gone to the Jewish leader first, and not even the high priest, but the, the power behind the high priest, the godfather of the priests, Annas. This is where Jesus goes first. There's one more detail that John wants us to keep in mind as this Jewish trial begins. John doesn't want us to be thinking mainly about Annas and his political clout over the high priesthood. John wants us to be thinking about God. John wants us to be remembering that God is in sovereign control of this situation. And so John reminds us in verse 14 that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Even though John is telling us about Annas, he wants us to remember this event back in John chapter 11. We read in John 11, verses 49 to 52. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Listen to this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation 
and not for the nation only, but also to gather in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas, Annas, and the other Jews think that this trial, that is, it is expedient. It is expedient for one man to die for the Jewish people, to die in place of the whole Jewish nation. If this Jesus teaching is permitted to continue, if Jesus is allowed to go on preaching his message, then the whole Jewish nation is going to die at the hands of the Romans because Jesus is about to instigate a revolution against Rome. That's what they think. So rather than permitting Jesus to continue preaching, which would lead to insurrection, Caiaphas proposes that Jesus die so that the nation continued to exist. Jesus is going to die so that the nation does not die at the hands of the Romans. That's what Caiaphas thought he was saying. That's what is motivating this whole Jewish trial this night. In other words, for Caius and Annas and all the other Jews who are gathered together that night, the outcome of this trial is already determined. Jesus is already sentenced to death. This trial is a sham. But John doesn't want us to be thinking about those Jewish expectations. He wants us to be seeing the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus at this moment. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus is going to die for the nation, but not only for the nation, Jesus is going to die not just to free the Israelites from the, from the threat of Roman slaughter. No, no, no. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. So to free the world from this threat of sin and its eternal consequences if they would believe in him. Jesus is on trial. But the Jesus that we see on trial is not a Jesus who is prisoner to his circumstances, a Jesus who is helplessly headed to an innocent death. No, the Jesus that we see on trial and sovereign, this Jesus is sovereign in the midst of a corrupt and unfair trial. That's how John wants to set the picture for us. This is Jesus going into his trial. But Jesus is not the only one who's on trial in our text this morning. John wants us to see that Peter is on trial as well. Notice with me verses 15 to 18. John 18, verses 15 to 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, there are several specific things that we need to see in this text which emphasize this contrast between Peter and Jesus. 
We already know that John wants to contrast Peter and Jesus in their trials, generally speaking. That's what he's doing by putting these two stories side by side. John is going to do this by mentioning specific differences in their situations, drawing our attention to these differences. For example, Jesus enters the presence of Annas by himself. All of Jesus' disciples have abandoned him. Now here comes Peter at a safe distance, but Peter's not by himself. John tells us that another disciple is with Peter. Probably this other disciple is, in fact, John himself. John was prominent in the ministry of Jesus. So you can hardly tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection without referencing himself. John is also not a proud person, so he's not going to just go around talking about himself all the time. He's not going to be unnecessarily attracting attention to himself. And so this is probably why in this text he just refers to himself as another disciple. Similarly, he had referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved back at that table uh, at the Last Supper. Somehow, John, the apostle, is known to the high priest. Uh, Perhaps there was some sort of a family relationship between Zebedee, John's father, and Annas, or the family of Annas. We we really don't know. It's sort of speculation, but in some way, for some reason, they were acquaintances. John was known to the high priest, and, and he was well enough known and on friendly enough terms that he could go into the courtyard on this, this night without, without any issues at all. John not only is known as perhaps some sort of a family friend of the high priest, but he's also apparently known as a disciple of Jesus. This is the direct implication of the text that we see. Uh, Notice the servant girl says, you also, to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? You also, she says. You, Peter, in addition to this John, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? So, So somehow John has this positive connection with the high priest. There's perhaps this family connection there that he can just go into the high priest's house. He's granted access to to at least the courtyard during Jesus' trial. With John, sort of, is Peter. Peter's going in. And, and, And we always get the impression, as you read the story, that it's like Peter and John walking close enough together, but but not really walking together. Not, not necessarily arriving at the scene. You know how you've, you've watched those movies, right? And you've got those two people who are spying on someone else or they're guilty of doing something. You go in first and I'll come, back, I'll come in a minute later or something like that, you know? They don't really want to be seen with each other or at least Peter doesn't really want to be seen with John because there's implications that go along with that. Everybody knows John's a disciple of this Jesus. Nevertheless, they are together or at least they could be together John is the one who gets Peter into the courtyard. So John and Peter could be together at this moment. Jesus is alone. John and Peter at least potentially have one another. This is the very first contrast. But why does that matter? Why does it matter that here's Jesus alone and John and Peter at least could have one another? Have you ever ever thought about how important it is to have fellow believers with you as you go through trials and temptations? I'm sure you have. 
Think about how much more difficult faithfulness is in the hour of trial when you are alone and you are isolated. Think about how much easier it is to pass through trials when you have fellow believers with you. Peter has a significant advantage as he approaches Annas' house. He has John. They could serve together as positive peer pressure for one another, encouragement through this hour of, of trial. But what happens? Well, John grants Peter access, but Peter immediately faces his first trial, his first temptation. The servant girl asks, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Perhaps if we were watching a real courtroom trial going on here, and uh, we would hear a, a prosecuting attorney jump up and shout, Objection, Your Honor! Leading the witness! Leading the witness. We all, we all know there are different kinds of ways of asking questions, right? If, if you ask someone a question expecting to hear a yes, you're likely to get a yes, right? You took the cookies out of the cookie jar, didn't you? Didn't you? You can hear that. Well, the natural answer to that, you're leading the, the child to say, yes, yes, I did, as a matter of fact. I know you're guilty, my child, so just fess up. Yes, yes, it was me. Or if we expect someone to say no to the question, we might say this. You didn't take the cookies from the cookie jar, did you? Well, no. No, it wasn't me. I, I didn't do it. You can see how that question is just, is just begging the response of, no, it wasn't me. No. It's, it's so easy to say no when that question is posed that way, isn't it? You didn't do that, did you? No, no, that wasn't me. This is what we have here in the story of the servant girl. The servant girl says, you also aren't one of his disciples, are you? It's, it's the way that the question is framed itself. The question is framed in a way that says, no, no, not, not me, I'm not. Peter has peer pressure in this moment. He's got John right there with him. In his first trial, he could lean on his friend, his companion, for encouragement. And say, actually, yes, yes, I am. I'm with, I'm with him. But he denies. In his isolation, Jesus enters his trial. And Peter, on the other hand, in spite of having a companion with him, he fails in his first trial. And we mustn't move on too quickly from this. There's another contrast that John wants to draw out for us in this denial, in the response of Peter, in the response of Jesus. Peter gave this easy response, I am not. If we go back to 18.5, when Jesus was in the garden, they, the, um, the, the, all of the soldiers, they're there asking, uh, Jesus asks them, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And Jesus responds with this very simple, short response, I am he. We looked at that last week. I am he. Ego e me. Two simple, succinct words. When Peter is asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He answers, I am not. Uk e me. Two simple, succinct 
words. The Apostle John is drawing our attention to the very confession that Peter denies. Peter's words are the exact opposite of what Jesus confessed. When Jesus confesses in that hour of trial, ego e me, I am he. Peter, on trial, he denies, uke me, I am not. Peter is failing in his faithfulness exactly where Jesus succeeded in his faithfulness. But there's one more point of contrast here in this text. Jesus has been delivered by the soldiers to the officers of Annas. Jesus is alone in the cold night amidst all these soldiers before Annas. And here's Peter. Notice what the verse says. The servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing, warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's as though John the Apostle wants to tell us that Peter in this moment has more in common with these soldiers than he does with Jesus. John's story continues. He continues to draw out this contrast. But we need to reflect upon this first contrast between Jesus and Peter. You know, here at VBC, we are regularly emphasizing the importance of our life together, our fellowship together as a church family. Our church relationship is not a once a week kind of relationship. Jesus intends for us to live in community with one another. We need one another. We can endure trials and temptations when we have brothers and sisters to lean on and to help us through. This is one of the ways that Jesus keeps us. He promises he will keep us and he uses means, he uses tools, he uses people to do that. Notice that technically belonging to a community didn't automatically save Peter. Here's Jesus isolated and alone, yet confessing the good confession. We'll see more about Jesus' confession in just a minute. But now we have Peter, who technically has his brother from another mother, John, right there. And yet Peter chooses to deny Jesus. I am not. In other words, as important as it is to belong to a community, if you're actually distancing yourself from that community, from that fellowship in the hour of your trial, you may well very, you very well may abandon Christ and make shipwreck of your faith. And what's more, the the, the brash and the overly zealous uh, commitments that are made to Jesus and and the privacy and the security of peace cannot keep you from denying Jesus and making shipwreck of your faith. After all, it was the same Peter who said, Lord, why can I not follow you down? I will lay my life down for you. Your faithfulness to Christ in the hour of trial requires more than brash commitments and membership cards. Your perseverance and faithfulness requires more. What more does it require? Let's continue in John's account. Verses 19 to 24, we return to Jesus and Annas. We read this. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to 
openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I have said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. A few minutes ago, I mentioned the complexity of the politics surrounding the high priesthood of this day. When, when John mentions in verse number 19, he says he was talking to the high priest. This isn't like a, a Freudian slip or a historical error or something like that. Rather, high priest is being used as a, as a title of respect. Annas had been the high priest. He had been deposed, and now he's sort of like the, the godfather of the priests. And now Caiaphas is technically the high priest. It would be sort of like in our world, we continue to refer to former presidents as Mr. President. Even though they're not the sitting president of the time, we continue to show them that honor and that respect. Very similar to what we see in verse number 19. John isn't making historical error. He's simply referring with respect to Annas, the former high priest. So John tells us about this interrogation from Annas. Annas asks him about his disciples and teaching. And it's interesting because in Jesus' response, Jesus says nothing about his disciples. And he informs Annas about everything about his teaching. And everyone knows what his teaching is, Jesus says. Now, this response is important for a couple of reasons. First, again, I'm reminded of Jesus' commitment to keep his disciples. Right? Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 12. I have guarded them and none of them is lost, he says. Then in John chapter 18 and verse number 8, he told the the soldiers, I am he, I'm the one who who you're seeking. And then John tells us he said this to fulfill the words that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So once more, here before Annas, Jesus continues to keep his disciples by refusing to discuss them before Annas. It's none of Annas' business. Instead, Jesus Jesus changes the direction and focuses the attention on his teaching. This is what he's been teaching. Now, second reason. So we've got Jesus, Anna says, your disciples and your teaching. So now the teaching, Jesus addresses the teaching. He says, ask anybody. Everybody knows what I've been teaching. I have said nothing in private. This is really important because ultimately Jesus is being accused for his teachings. But according to Jewish law, if there's an issue with Jesus' teaching, there's supposed to be a witness. Someone who's going to testify as to what the teaching was and why it's a problem. And Jesus' response, basically what Jesus says here is he is rebuking Annas for violating the law and forcing Jesus to testify against himself. That's why he says, Why do you ask this of me? Ask those who have heard me what I say to them. Okay? Jesus is confronting Annas on on violating the law and the legal procedure that was established by the law. Annas, obey the law. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is why Jesus is, is hit by the guard. 
everyone understands that Jesus is rebuking Annas in this moment for not following the structures of the law in this trial. But someone in Jesus' position is basically just supposed to, to defer to Annas and kowtow and just do, do what he's told. And so Jesus is struck by a soldier for disrespecting Annas. Consider also, as we see this situation unfolding, consider the contrast between the integrity of Jesus' ministry and this sham trial before the Jews. This is a sham trial that's taking place at night. Jewish law not only required witnesses, Jewish law also required all trials to take place during the day. And trials, considering the death penalty, were supposed to take place over the course of two days, making sure that the situation was public, there were opportunities for defense, and everything was being out, done out transparently. Jesus' words are drawing attention to the many violations of Jewish law that are taking place in this sham trial. Again, notice John is making it clear. Jesus is hiding nothing Jesus has said what is right. Jesus denies nothing. This is the response of faithfulness. Hide nothing, confess what is true, and trust the outcome to a sovereign God who is in control. That's what the good confession looks like. And that's what Jesus did. But this example of faithfulness is met once more by Peter's example of faithlessness. Notice verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it. And at once... A rooster crowed. Now in verse 25, we have the exact same question repeated as the servant girl had given a few verses earlier. And Peter gives the same exact answer that he had already given back in verse number 17. And so through repetition, John is reminding us and emphasizing to us what has already taken place in Peter's trial. Remember, the question assumes a no answer. It's very easy for Peter at this point to just say, nope, wasn't me, don't know anything about it. It's, it's the answer that the question is sort of implying. I am not, ukimi. Strike two. Remember that Jesus had already told Peter in the upper room, in response to Peter's, Peter's brash promise, Will you lay down your life for me? Jesus said, truly, truly, I tell you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We're up to number two. Three denials are predicted. Two have come to pass. And now the third trial takes a different form. Rather than being a denial easy to make, did you, you weren't one of them, were you? Nope, nope. Easy, easy response. Rather than that, this third time, Peter's confronted with an eyewitness. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now consider this, in light of the contrast with Jesus. 
Jesus is presented with no witnesses and is forced to testify against himself. And Jesus testifies what is right and what is true. He hides nothing. Peter is now confronted with a witness. Now the question doesn't give Peter an easy denial. This is not phrased like uh, expecting a no answer. This question is not one that Peter can just say no to lightly. This question is a confrontation. This question is actually hardly a question. It's more like a statement. It's an accusation from this eyewitness. Did I not see you in the garden with him? The question cries out, yes, yes, it was me, guilty, guilty as charged, I was there. But for a third time, Peter denies it. What happens? At once, the rooster crowed. Peter has failed. And this is actually the last thing that we hear from Peter until John 20, after the resurrection. Peter disappears from the scene. The Gospels of Mark and Luke both tell us that at this point, Peter remembered what Jesus had spoken and he went out and wept bitterly. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this contrast? How do we explain this failure of Peter? Before we answer by dismissing this whole event as the obvious predestination of God, after all, Jesus had told him he was going to deny him, right? I mean, so apparently God just predestined the whole thing, and, you know, what's Peter to do? Now, we need to remember a couple of promises that God makes in Scripture. The first promise that I want to remind you of comes through the apostle James. James was actually the half-brother of Jesus, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he writes this in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, temp he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In other words, we cannot respond to the denial of Peter by simply saying, God predestined him to fail, let's move on. No, 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 God doesn't do that. Not according to James. In fact, the second promise that we need to remind ourselves of is from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and, and verse number 13. And it tells us what, what God does do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Not only does God not predestine Peter or you to failure, he also provides a way of escape in all temptation so that you may be able to endure the temptation. In our text this morning, John wants us to see this contrast between Peter and Jesus. John wants us to learn from it. John is not only holding Jesus out as our supreme and sufficient Savior who paid the penalty for our sins, a penalty which we could never pay. That is true. 
But he's also bringing Jesus' trial into conversation with Peter's denial. And so by contrasting Jesus with Peter, John is holding out a Jesus who is an example for us to follow. John is warning us of following the example of Peter. In other words, just as Jesus and Peter both passed through this temptation that night, so you will pass through temptations and trials in your own life. And this doesn't mean that God is setting you up to fail. God tempts no one to evil in that sense. Not only that, but God is sovereign, even over temptations. And since he is sovereign, even over temptations, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, what you can handle by his grace and through his means of grace. God did not fail Jesus at the trial, and God did not fail Peter at the trial. John the Apostle is showing us that even though Peter had the gifts of God at hand so that he could persevere through that temptation, Peter chose not to receive those gifts. He did not use those tools that God had given him. He did not persevere in his faithfulness. He had a friend. He had a brother who could have offered accountability and encouragement in that moment, friendship in that moment of temptation. A simple, yeah, I'm with John, would have been better than I am not. And yet, even though God faithfully provided Peter with this way of escape, this fellowship to get through the temptation, God offered him this one another. Peter did not take it. Peter took the easy road out of temptation. She expects a no? I'll give her a no. Easy peasy. Nope, not him. Denial is at times so very easy. Not only did God give John the gift of a one another, a brother to encourage him and provide him accountability and friendship, God also gave Peter the very words of Jesus. Again, Mark and Luke both tell us that John at this point remembered what Jesus had said. In other words, the words of Jesus were apparently, during the temptation, they were not front and center in John's mind, and in Peter's mind. As Peter is standing there in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, his mind is not on everything that Jesus has taught him. Here's Jesus in the house, confessing everything, explaining everything that he has taught, and denying nothing. Not only is Peter denying, he's actually not even thinking about Jesus' words in this moment of temptation. The words of Jesus are only life to your soul if you are meditating on them. They're only satisfying to your soul if you are thinking about them. And Peter's mind is apparently consumed with the immediacy of this stressful situation and his fear in the midst of it. How often it's true as we pass through trials and temptations of our own. Not only do we fail to rely on one another and to lean on one another in these times of difficulty, the good gift of friendship that God has given us to one another, but when we're in the middle of trials and temptations, we're consumed with the immediacy of the situation. We can't manage to think about anything else. 
Our minds are full of fear. Our minds are running through all the options in our heads, replaying the scenarios over and over and over in our minds. And we completely forget about the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, which are supposed to be life to our very soul. We forget about God's word to us, which is supposed to sustain us through difficulty. We forget that he has made promises to us. Promises which, if we would remember them, if we would rely on them, we would find the strength to persevere through temptation. But like Peter, we don't remember Jesus' words until it's too late and we've already failed. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must give our hearts and our souls and our minds to the knowledge of God. The teaching of God's word matters because it is the teaching of who God is in scripture that is life to our souls. It's when we know God, when we know who he is, when we know how he works, when we know who our enemy is as God has revealed his enemy to us that we can see the lies of temptation and persevere in faithfulness to our Savior. But the less we know about God, the less we know about God's ways, the less we love and the less we obey. The less we know, the less we persevere through trials and temptations. Brothers and sisters, John is drawing our eyes to this contrast between Jesus and Peter so that we would believe in Jesus as our sufficient Savior, yes, but also so that we would see the faithfulness of Jesus through temptation and that we would see the failure of Peter and that we would learn from both examples because we all face temptations and sufferings in our lives. Normally, we face these trials on an everyday basis, not necessarily big, blown-up ones like what Peter has, but even small responses to small temptations and small trials are preparing our souls for how we're going to respond when the big one comes. Your commitment to Jesus, your commitment to what you know about Jesus, your commitment to the very words of Jesus, your commitment to the gifts of Jesus, the means of grace, the, the, the godly disciplines that God has put at your disposal. This is what makes the difference between faithfulness and failure. Peter's problem wasn't that he was predestined to failure. His problem was that he forgot the words of Jesus and he rejected the gifts of Jesus, specifically that gift of a friend in John. So brothers and sisters, let us learn from this example. Learn from Peter and Jesus. Don't just brashly commit yourself to never follow in the failure of Peter. Commit yourself to the words of Jesus. Commit yourself to scripture. Commit yourself to the teachings of Jesus, the promise. Hold on to the promises of Jesus, the rebukes of Jesus, the friends of Jesus. This is the difference between your failure and your faithfulness. Father,